This is a very sobering passage to me, but it is a hope-filled passage, even though there are some discouraging realities addressed. This is a passage that deals with the death of a faithful man of God, a man who is about to be executed for his testimony and witness of Jesus Christ. And it's Paul's final letter to his disciple, Timothy. It is Paul's final set of instructions, if you will. Not that Timothy doesn't know what to do. He's a pastor. He's known the scriptures since childhood. He's a faithful man of God who has been a trusted disciple of Paul's for years. So this is not Paul telling Timothy something new, but reminding Timothy of things that he should not forget. We've been in this series of applying 1 John 3:18, let us love not in let us not love in work, word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And today we are looking at the heart of a mentor to his disciple, Paul seeking to encourage Timothy for the coming days as well as comfort him in his departure. And because of this and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, Uh, to preserve this, the Word of God, we get to benefit from this as well. The application is relevant today just as much as it was 2,000 years ago. But I would like to start back in chapter 3, verse 12, and the reason I want to start here is because I believe it gives a foundation to the things that come after it, and it says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil People and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There will be persecution. Paul makes this very clear. There are evil people who are impostors who deceive. Paul makes this clear as well. He doesn't say run away from this. He doesn't say to drive them out from town by an angry mob. He says continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. Continue doing what you've been doing. The world is going to be the world. Evil people are going to be evil. But a good and faithful God is always going to be a good and faithful God. Our weapon, Ephesians 6, tells us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our defense from the attacks from this world... um, are all here in this book that we have, and the word tells us the world tells us that this book is outdated and irrelevant and doesn't hold anything for us today. But Paul doesn't tell Timothy that the scriptures he grew up with, which would have been the Old Testament at this point, uh, were old and outdated. When Paul wrote this, and he said all scripture is breathed out by God, he was referring to the Old Testament scriptures. They're breathed out by God, just like all the other scriptures. God doesn't change, therefore, scripture doesn't change. Therefore, this book is reliable and profitable and authoritative and sufficient for all life and godliness. 
Paul begins this final portion of this letter by saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Christ is the witness to this charge. Paul is giving his beloved Timothy. Paul says that he charges Timothy in the presence of God and of Christ. This is where we as believers stand. And there is a particular focus on Christ's role as the ultimate, eternal, and final judge. John Calvin writes this, More especially, the apostle fixes attention on the judgment of Christ, because as we are his representatives, so he will demand a more strict account of evil administration. By the living and the dead are meant those whom he shall find still alive at his coming, and likewise those who shall have died. There will therefore be none that escape his judgment. What we teach, what we tell others, is not just a matter of being right or wrong, but it holds eternal consequence. If Paul preached like most preachers today, he could very well have died an old man in the comfort of his own home. John MacArthur often says this about Paul. When Paul entered into a new town, he never asked how the hotels were, but instead asked how the jail was because he was most likely to wind up there. What we teach others, what we say, must be held to the authority of Scripture in its proper context. Just because we say the Bible says it or doesn't say it doesn't mean it's in the right context. We need to know ourselves what the Bible says in the context of how it says it and teach others to read and study the Bible. There's the old way of interpreting the Bible that I'm sure many of you have heard where somebody yells, God, please speak to me, and he opens his Bible and he points to a random verse and it says, and Judas hung himself. And then he says, obviously that can't be what you're trying to tell me, God, so please speak to me again. So he opens his Bible and points at a random verse and says, God, speak to me, and it says, go and do quickly. And of course, that can't be right either. We have a responsibility before God and the ultimate judge of the universe to be faithful in our handling of the word of God. So what is Paul's charge to Timothy based on this per, uh, these verses? And it's preach the word. Preach the word. What part? All of it. It might offend someone. It will. The gospel is offensive. It is foolish to those who are perishing. Well, what if people reject me? They will. And maybe some of you might say, well, this is Timothy's charge as a pastor. Not all of us are called to be pastors, and that is true. But a pa- one of um, the jobs of a pastor is also raising up disciples to go and make more disciples. If we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's a cycle. It's disciples making disciples. It's passing the baton to use this running a race language that Paul uses a little bit later. And this can kind of be intimidating to some people. Some of us aren't necessarily good at um, sharing our faith. But here's something to kind of, I hope, take the pressure off. And that is you don't save anybody. 
It's not on you to save anybody. You throw the seed. You're commanded to throw seed. God is the one who saves. God is the one who does the work in a person's life. Our job is to be faithful to the text of Scripture, to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to the commands of God. This doesn't mean that you won't be discouraged at time. If we look over in chapter 2 again, starting in verse 15, it says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetius, uh, I know I said that wrong, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now pay attention to this next part. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Your job is to rightly handle the word of truth. God knows who are his, and he has a 100% success rate in calling to him who belong to him. Ten out, of peop- ten out of ten people whom God calls and has predestined to himself will come to him. Alistair Begg says that it is the word of God that does the work of God by the spirit of God in the people of God. Our prayer should be that God would do a work in someone's life by their hearing of the word of God so that they may have a real encounter with God. This is not an emotional high. This is a real convicting encounter with God by the hearing of the word and the work of the spirit in their life. A conviction that makes a person aware of the sin that is in their life and the destructive power that it has on them. The hopelessness of realizing what wretched people we are. But also a beautiful realization of the glorious Savior that Christ is. Preach the word. Our goal is not to entertain you. Our goal is not to make church fun and different. It's not to change things up, to keep you on your toes. To show that we're a cool church. Our goal is to faithfully preach the word. This includes the things that are unpopular by the world's standards. This includes things that are difficult to hear and make sense of. Um, And when we encounter people, when we are discipling others, it's about growing in our knowledge and of our understanding of the word so that they can go out and do the same and make more disciples. It's kind of like the Energizer Bunny. It just keeps going and going. It's a link and it's a new link in the chain of discipleship. The reason that we gather as a church is to hear from God. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 10 in the latter part of it, it says gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. If you are going to church to hear from a man, you're going for the wrong reasons. And if you go to church and a man makes it all about him, he's not doing his job. 
But let's move on from that. It says this, be ready in season and out of season. So when is that, I ask you? When is in season and out of season? Well, you're either in season or you're out of season. So this is all the time. Whichever one you are, preach the word in that season of life and be ready to do so. But there is more to it. This means to preach when things are good and to preach when things are bad. When you are loved by the congregation and the people and when you are hated. Let us let Calvin enlighten us to this again. Moreover, this earnestness must must relate both to the pastor and to the people. To the pastor, that he may not devote himself to the office of teaching merely at his own times and according to his own convenience, but that, shrinking neither from toils nor annoyances, he may exercise his faculties to the utmost." So far as they are aroused, those who, um, so far in regards to people, there is constancy and earnestness when they arouse those who are asleep, when they lay their hands on those who are hurrying in a wrong direction, and when they correct the trivial occupations of the world. Pastors must be courageous. No stepping back from an issue that needs to be addressed, not caving to the world when they try to shut him up, there, is, there are some things that will never be convenient to say, at least not anymore, that I'm convinced of. For example, I don't think that there will be a, a time again wherein declaring marriage to be between one man and one woman for life is ever going to be culturally accepted again. And I could be wrong. But the amount of rainbows I see everywhere on Facebook and Instagram and other social media seem to say that the world has accepted and supported this shift almost completely. It's either that or they are very happy God has promised to never flood the earth again, but I doubt it. For the people, we stand against the world in a more personal way. Sometimes our friends and families, neighbors and co-workers... It's really nice to have Christian friends and family. But what about when you're faced with calling out sin or error in someone's life, with confronting someone? A good friend of mine recently posted on Facebook that he has shifted over to annihilationism, which this is a doctrine that states that hell is not eternal, that one day... It's not that the people in hell will go to heaven, it's not universalism, but that God will one day, when they have served their time, he will just annihilate them, that they will just cease to exist. And I sent him a message telling him that I was concerned, and he was gracious, and we have plans to talk, it just hasn't happened yet, or I would tell you how that went. But there are times when we have to confront error to show love to our friends, to show love to our neighbor, to confront them in error, to stand against the ever-changing culture, to once again stand upon the unchanging foundation that is the word of God. Paul then writes, reprove and rebuke. These two things are seen, as John MacArthur puts it, the negative aspects of preaching. It would be so much better if everyone just had the same understanding of Christianity and Scripture as we do, so we would never have to reprove or rebuke anybody. But we live in a fallen world, and we are fallen people. 
And to reprove and rebuke is not to beat somebody down until they come crawling back begging for forgiveness, but it is to be done in love for the sake of the individual. This goes into the next key word here that Paul uses is patience, complete patience. But in doing so, be patient with one another. Patience is critical when it comes to discipleship and mentorship. Mentorship Sanctification doesn't move at the same speed for everybody. I know this because I look back on people in the past who have invested in me, who put hours into discipling me, who have gently and lovingly reproved and rebuked me, who I just brushed off because they didn't really know who I was or what I was about. And I look back and I feel terrible for them. I really do, because it turns out that they did know what they were talking about a whole lot more than I did. I was insufferable at times. My parents can attest to this. Their patience, their patience should have run out on me long before I stepped away from them. The truth is that we don't know how we may impact somebody's life in the future by simply coming alongside them, loving them, guiding them, and caring for them. We don't know the work that God is going to do in their life. I felt so bad for being a bonehead to these men that I actually tracked down one of them, and I wrote him a letter just saying thank you for the patience that he had for me as he tried over and over again to pound the gospel into my head, and I thanked him for trying to do so. No one likes to be corrected, No one likes to be shown that they are in error because it means we have to admit that we're wrong sometimes. But this is absolutely crucial to our growth as a Christian. To do so in love and gentleness and with the authority of Scripture is something we must do. And as we grow, it is something we appreciate more and more and recognize as loving when people come up to us and confront us. If we don't, the consequence is what Paul writes about next. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is not something that was new back then. This is not something that is new now. This is something that we will all deal with at one point or another in our lives and in ministry False teaching will wriggle its way into the body. We read earlier of Hymenaeus and Philetus who swerved from the truth, meaning that they once professed or at least showed uh, an understanding for the truth and now have shifted and are leading others astray as well. One of the things we have to remember is that God has spoken. Paul writes to the Galatians that if he or an angel from heaven were to come and preach a different gospel than the one that was already preached, let him be accursed. We have already established that God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, his word does not change. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. There is coming a time when people will not endure sound teaching, and we should not be surprised by this. One, because we've seen it before, and two, because this is what happens constantly throughout Scripture. We see this over and over and over again. The Word of God, do not eat 
from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What happened? They turned away from truth, sought after a teacher that would tickle their ears and suit their own passions. The woman saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes and good for food. God, you saw what I did to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Now you know that I am the Lord, people of Israel. Hmm. These other nations do things a little bit differently than we do. Let's make a golden calf and worship that instead. They wander off into myths, exchange the truth for God for a lie, and worship the creature rather than the creator. Another one a little bit more extreme. I'm married and I'm faithful. Of course I won't do anything physical, but we can do window shopping. But Jesus says, you've heard that it was told, do not commit adultery. But I say to you this, if you even look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. The prophets, people said, speak to us with smooth words. If people don't like the way that the Bible is preached, they go find someone who preaches it in the way that they want it to be preached. doesn't matter if that's the correct way. It fits their desires. If it tickles their ears, they're going to do it. Instead of being corrected by their own church, which, who love them and want to see the person come to repentance and be in good standing with the church, that's the point of church discipline. It's a good thing. It's a loving thing, and it's for the sake of you and I. But instead, they desert. Young folk right now, and it's... In my age group, I would consider myself a young folk, but are being influenced by what's called deconstructionism, a movement that essentially teaches teenagers and young adults who grew up in the church that everything that they learned is wrong and that they have to deconstruct it and reconstruct it back to the way that they want it to be. This movement focuses on completely rejecting the authority of Scripture and what it says about human sexuality, social justice, race, hell, the wrath of God, basically anything that might be considered negative or controversial, and they either get rid of it or they reinterpret it to fit their own desires. This is really nothing new. But those in this movement have done exactly what Paul talks about here. They hate sound doctrine. They want to have approval for believing the things that they believe and reject the things they reject so that they seek out teachers who will affirm anything and everything they want them to. If they don't, they move on to something else. When we don't correct error, when we don't confront wrong teaching, we give approval of it. We must be willing to preach sound doctrine and truth in times when it is vastly unpopular to do so. This is why I began back in chapter 3. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. Because there will be times when we hear that voice or someone we're discipling will ask the question, Did God really say? And we will be able to answer with a firm yes or no. Because we stand grounded on the truth of what we have held to and learned and firmly believe. Paul then gives Timothy another charge. Be sober-minded. So think clearly. Keep your head. Endure suffering. Suffering will come. 
chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, whether physically, like Paul, where he was uh, in prison and waiting death and execution, and a, he was abandoned by people, suffering will come. Um, this is, is this something that we are preparing for? Is this something that as we disciple others, is this something we're telling them to be ready for? Because for a long time we've said or we've thought that persecution could not come over to the Western world. But I would say look at Canada right now. Pastors are being arrested just for having church and keeping their churches open. We are not untouchable. When we teach others, do we teach the cost of following Jesus, that every day we pick up our cross to follow him, maybe to losing our freedoms and maybe to death just for being a Christian? Paul then writes, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. These famous last words of Paul, a drink offering was the final offering that followed the burnt and grain offerings prescribed to the people of Israel. This was Paul's final offering to the Lord, his death. He viewed his martyrdom as worshipped, to make the ultimate sacrifice. It was not Paul losing to the Romans. Rome had no victory. Paul knows this, and he is comforted in this fact. I have fought the good fight, he says. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. His life was complete. He had done, by the grace of God, all God had called him to complete. He was faithful to his last breath. He knew that his reward awaited him, not because of anything he did to earn it. He was obedient, yes, but the crown would that he would receive would no doubtably be thrown down at the feet of Jesus immediately, for he is truly the only one worthy. To make a disciple is to simply preach the word, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that others may do the same, to continue on in this work, to fulfill the great commission. And I would ask, is there anyone here God has laid upon your heart to grab a cup of coffee with, to go out to dinner or lunch or go rock climbing or whatever it might be? Is there somebody that you have on your heart to talk to, to reach out to? Would you pray about this with this church, the people here? Would you commit to that, that we would have a um, continued, that we would continue in this la already long-lasting legacy that this, this church has of faithfulness to the word of God and to raise up the next generation of leaders? We have so many opportunities with our own people here, but also with the school across the street. We know that God has promised to preserve his church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. May we raise up the next generation by the grace and the power of God, that the next generation meets this world head-on with the sword of the Spirit, that we may have hearts of discipleship to continue the work of God and what he has called us to do here. That when it comes to our time, when the Lord calls us home, we would be able to say to those who are coming up after, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
for the solid foundation that is your word. Thank you for the testimony and legacy that is Paul and Timothy. I pray this morning for those in this church that there would be an urgency to equip the next generation for the work of the gospel. Would you strengthen us to stand against the temptations to cave to the world? Would you keep us grounded in the truth that we have learned and firmly believe that is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Thank you for this time of worship. We pray that it may be glorifying to you. In Christ's name, amen.